I'm here today with Dr. Robert Stackpole, the director of the John Paul II Institute of Divine Mercy and author of Mary, Who She Is and Why She Matters, a book that covers one of the more important topics in the church, I think. Robert, it's good to have you with us today. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you, even from a, a, a far away. Absolutely. You're a Catholic convert from Protestantism and a former ordained Anglican minister, so what would Protestant Robert Stackpole have thought of this book? Okay, well, gosh, I was a high church Anglican or Anglo-Catholic, as you probably know, Chris, mm -hmm. before I became a, a Roman Catholic. And we already believed a lot that the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. For example, that she's the new Eve and mm -hmm. God's plan of salvation, that, that she's rightly called the ever-Virgin Mother of God. Uh, we even, um, most uh, high Anglicans also believed in the Assumption of Mary and sometimes even liturgically celebrated it. So mm -hmm. unlike a lot of Protestant groups, we're already fairly close yeah. to uh, a lot of the Marian doctrines of the Catholic Church. But there was one that really caught us up short, and that's the Immaculate Conception. Huh. E even most Anglicans just don't believe that there's enough evidence from Scripture or the ancient mm -hmm. tradition of the Church to justify uh, belief in that doctrine. So Probably Protestant Robert, if he was reading uh, the book that I wrote, as you as you put it, Chris, he'd say, well, he'd be especially challenged by the, especially yeah. interested in and challenged by that, that chapter on the Immaculate Conception in the book. So it's all the more remarkable that you ended up working for the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary then. Yeah, how about that? God's yeah. got a sense of humor, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> what is it about the Immaculate Conception that is so challenging for Anglo-Catholics? Um, again, I think it's, they, they see a kind of paucity of, of evidence mm -hmm. in, in scripture and tradition. But I, I think one of the biggest problems, Chris, is, uh, is even more fundamental than that. It's that they don't understand what the doctrine says. Mm -hmm. And this is true, uh, I find, about a lot of different Protestant groups. Yeah. Uh, they sometimes violently object to what they think the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. But when you actually explain to them the doctrines that the church officially teaches, they say, well, gosh, that's that's not so bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe I can't, uh, as a Protestant, prove all that from Scripture alone, as my Protestant tradition insists that I have to do mm -hmm. about everything revealed by God. You know, that's the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, that everything we, we, we need to believe about God has to be, be proven from scripture alone. Yeah. Well, maybe I can't prove all that Mary stuff from scripture all, all by itself, but yeah. it sure makes sense that it fits with scripture, it yeah. harmonizes with scripture. And I remember one of the key steps on my journey was reading the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission, the International Ecumenical Commission between mm -hmm. Anglicans and Roman Catholics, their beautiful statement about Mary called Mary, Grace and Hope in Christ. And in that a long book length statement really, in the end, the Anglican delegates said, you know, we can't insist that our members believe in the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption, mm -hmm. uh, but we don't see anything really bad about it. I mean, it really, it really fits with what God revealed in, yeah. in Scripture. So um, that's the first thing. There's a kind of fundamental um, clarification of the doctrine mm -hmm. that, that has to happen even before you start looking at the uh, the, yeah. the biblical evidence. And, and that doctrine, as I think a lot of our, our listeners will already know, but just mm -hmm. to recap simply, is that um, everything about Mary from mm -hmm. the very beginning of her existence, her conception in the womb of her, her mother, St. Anne, right till the end of her life and, and her enthronement as Queen of Heaven, everything about her is fashioned by divine grace. Yeah. So she's blessed by grace right from the first moment 
of her existence, mm-hmm. um, which is different than the rest of us because the rest of us are are caught up in the fallenness of human nature, the mm-hmm. uh, the broken, wounded condition we receive from Adam and Eve, which is the direct result of not having that gift of the indwelling mm-hmm. Holy Spirit right from the start of our lives. But but Mary's given that extraordinary gift precisely because of the extraordinary responsibility she's given. And this is a typical biblical pattern, which is what the Anglican ecumenical delegates saw, right? I mean, Moses has an extraordinary responsibility in God's plan, right? So God speaks to him in an extraordinary way and reveals himself to him through the burning bush. St. Paul has an extraordinary uh, role to play in the spread of the gospel throughout the earth and the articulation Mm -hmm. of the gospel. So God does something for him that, he doesn't do for others. He zaps him with a, yeah. uh, you know, with a blindness and a, and a special revelation of the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Mm-hmm. And and Mary too, she's got the most extraordinary um, of all responsibilities in God's plan of salvation to mm-hmm. receive on behalf of us all to receive Christ into the world and to nurture him in in his time of weakness and prepare him. Mm-hmm. So uh, she's given that extraordinary grace for that extraordinary responsibility. So this book then is sort of the fruit of your coming to terms with Mary, with the doctrines about Mary, with kind of the fruit of your your journey home to Rome in a, in a sense, right? Yeah, it's it's part of it, and I think the 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 second aspect of it is so the, actually the idea of the book came to me from um, Dr. Brian Thatcher, hmm. friend and colleague at Eucharistic Apostles of Divine Mercy, because he discovered from. Uh, talking with many of his EADM cynical leaders around the world that um, many of their members, of course, have a heartfelt devotion to Mary, but uh, there are very few of them are able to articulate what the Catholic Church actually believes about Mary, and they often find themselves in their local parishes under a kind of barrage from Protestant Christians, sometimes from Mm -hmm. very uh, strident evangelical Protestant Christians, Mm -hmm. who challenge them and say, look, all this stuff you believe about Mary, it's all myth, it's all legends, it's, it's not there in scripture, you know. And so he said, how can we help them mm-hmm. to understand in a straightforward way and articulate uh, to their Protestant brothers and sisters and to themselves for mm-hmm. their own deeper enrichment what the church really believes. So uh, in a sense, in, in writing the book, I was reaching back a little bit to my own journey, but also trying to respond in particular to the, the challenges that evangelical Protestant Christians often make to our, our Catholic beliefs about Mary. And to a certain extent, there's been some loss of that faith in the church, kind of in the last 40 years, 50 years, sort of in spite of the church, I think. Does this, does this also help Catholics address their brethren who have kind of lost the sense of Mary and her place in the, in the faith? I think so, Chris. I think you're putting your finger on something else. It's an aspect of what uh, um, several of the popes have called the new evangelization, mm-hmm. right, which actually begins not by you know, in, in evangelizing the godless world, so to speak, but actually Catholics evangelizing themselves again, yeah. uh, you know, falling love in love again with Christ in the Eucharist, Eucharistic amazement, as mm-hmm. John Paul said, or and coming to appreciate the, the fact that we have Mary, our spiritual mother, in the family of God. And so, yeah, in a sense, what you're saying is really the first thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catholics, and again, for that's why the book... Oh, I, uh, it kind of brought to birth with, uh, as you know, your help in part uh-huh. in, in writing it and uh, and Brian Thatcher's too, to pro- provide a little handy manual whereby Catholics can uh, appreciate for the first in time or rediscover 
uh, if mm-hmm. they've appreciated it once before, yeah. the truth, the beautiful truth about Mary, and then be equipped to to share it with others. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a relatively easy edit, I recall. I think you had it fairly far along at the very outset. Um, but in, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. In light of just the tonnage of Catholic literature on Mary, why another book? Why is there a tradition of, of Mary there is never enough? Oh, okay. You've got a, a couple of questions. Uh, uh, a couple of questions and one there. Let me let me try to answer the what I think is the first mm-hmm. question, the first why another book when there's so many out there. Uh, I found a, a lot of the books um, didn't address really the kind of questions that evangelical Protestants were making, or simply assumed that they understood yeah. the position that evangelical Protestants had, but they really hadn't. And the reason I had some kind of in-depth knowledge of this was not because I was ever an evangelical Protestant. I wasn't, but I uh, I taught part-time for many years at a small Catholic college out in Vancouver, BC, called Redeemer Pacific College, which is part of an evangelical Christian university. It's mm-hmm. a it was a first since the Reformation, you know, that kind of academic um, cooperation between the two traditions at one university. So we had, as you can imagine, a lot of um, ecumenical dialogue. And what I, I came to find is um, a number of the things that, ele- ev- that concern evangelicals about mm-hmm. Catholic Marian doctrine are not the kind of things really that Catholics were addressing in their books. Yeah. So yeah. I, I wanted to come up with something that was more directly addressing those things, mm-hmm. which would also be the kind of things that EADM members would be getting hit with out in their mm-hmm. uh, out in their parishes. Um, the the second aspect of your question is, well, why is there never enough about Mary? Well, in one sense, there's never enough because uh, the truth about Mary is one of the mysteries of the faith, and mm-hmm. there's depths upon depths that. Yeah. Uh, it's going to take the whole life of the church to uh, unpack and unfold, right? Yeah. Um, I think we dialogued about this a, a bit as we were preparing for this interview, so maybe we can uh, share with our, our your listeners a, a bit about that. But I remember in that dialogue I said, well, in a sense, I do think there sometimes can be mm-hmm. uh, too much about Mary. The, the, there are places and times and uh, communities in the church where People get wrapped up in um, in um, what I'd call the signs and wonders aspect hmm. of Marian devotion. There's mm-hmm. uh, there's too much uh, chasing after signs and wonders. For example, I remember the, that some years ago there was a stir in the USA because a woman had claimed that uh, Our Lady appeared in her pancake batter one morning when she was cooking breakfast, or uh, in Ireland where there was a statue that was a, apparently moving on its own, a Marian mm-hmm. statue. And, you know, quite apart from any investigation into these matters, yeah. it's not impossible. But you think, well, that's really not the kind of miracles that God does, yeah. uh, even in drawing attention to Mary. Those are national inquirer sort of yeah. uh, signs and wonders. It's not the kind, if you look at Catholic history or, mm-hmm. or you look at the scriptures, it's not the kind of thing God does. Yeah. Um, and then there's excessive end time speculations too, right? Where people looking for those magic bullets, mm-hmm. if we can only find that magic supernatural bullet, which will bring about yeah. the triumph of the Immaculate Heart right away, mm-hmm. you know, without necessarily having to do too much in terms of repentance and faith, which yeah. is our lady was calling for. So, you know, the, the, the line up here, if you can only get the fifth dogma, that, yeah. That dogma of Mary co-redemptrix, if we can only get that mm-hmm. uh, defined by the church, you know, that'll be the tipping point. Or if we can only get the 
Russia properly consecrated to Mary's Immaculate Heart. If we only get everyone mm -hmm. consecrated to Mary's Immaculate Heart, if we can only um, uh, get everyone doing the five first Saturday devotions, mm -hmm. then that'll do it, right? Yeah. I think, it, well, obviously, most or all of those things are good in themselves, and mm -hmm. some things that Mary even asked for explicitly, for example, Our, our Lady of Fatima, but um, she's always asked for them in the context of her call to deeper repentance and faith in her son. Without that dimension, the rest is, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to pull off any magic bullets here. Yeah. So it's both, it's a both and thing, really, is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, sometimes Marian devotion misses the forest for all the trees. And, and so I understand why some Protestant Christians encountering that in the Catholic community of faith can be concerned. Mm -hmm. But um, there's another sense in which there can never be too much Marian devotion. That is, in this, there can never be too much love for Mary. Yeah. So, you know, if you encounter one of your fellow Catholics who's a little bit into the um, the perif peripheral aspects mm -hmm. of Marian devotion, it's not that they need less love for Mary. They just need more love for Jesus. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, St. Maximilian Colby put this so beautifully. I, I love this quote. I stuck it in the book. Never be afraid of loving the Blessed Virgin too much because you can never love her more than Jesus did. We're following Jesus. We'll never be able to love her as much as he did. So don't worry about loving her too much. Just just yeah. love Jesus more and more. Uh, that's what Mary wants us to do anyway. That's you know, her, her whole apostolate is to bring us to the heart of her son. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say then is very much kind of in the spirit of Louis de Montfort, true devotion to Mary. Not just devotion to Mary, but true devotion to Mary. Not just mm -hmm. things about Mary, but of Mary herself, there is never enough. You can never have too much of that particular good thing. But, it, you know, she right. must be received as Mary, not as you want her to be. That's right. And and Mary is, a, as it were, a living sacra sacramental, or uh, Mary was a living tabernacle when yeah. she was, you know, with Christ in her womb. But she's a living sacrament of of Christ for us. So obviously her whole being is directed towards bringing mm -hmm. us through her heart to the heart of her son. Um, yeah. She never wants us to stop at Mary alone. We rejoice in Mary. I mean, how great is it to have yeah. a spiritual mother in heaven, but uh, never that alone and never that primarily, always uh, through Mary to her son, which is, as you said, just exactly what St. Louis de Montfort meant by true devotion. Did, did trying to kind of correct some of those deviations play a role in your writing of the book? Uh, no, I don't think that was a a, a major aspect of it. Okay. Um, I think that, um, I think this, I was really focusing on, if you just proclaim what the church and its tradition and yeah. saints and popes, if you just proclaim the truth about Mary, then everything falls into place. Yeah. Everything falls into its proper proportion and, and yeah. importance, right? So I, I didn't, you know, try to tackle a lot of those issues directly, yeah. except the issue, I guess, of Mary co-redemptrix. Mm -hmm. um, I did devote a, a special chapter to that, which was mostly just a, a long quote from Father Michael Gately's writing mm -hmm. uh, on this question, um, because this is one that scares uh, Protestants a yeah. lot. You know, are you saying that, you know, isn't Jesus alone the redeemer of the world? And well, there's, again, misunderstanding of what the phrase co means. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean uh, that Mary and Jesus are equals it means it comes from the latin cum which means with the redeemer hmm. uh, mary's the one who cooperates with the redeemer in a supreme and unique way yeah uh, probably expressed best of all by saint Teresa of calcutta yeah. in response uh, when she was asked do you believe in 
uh, you know, Mary is co-redemptrix. She said, well, of course, of course she's co-redemptrix. She, she gave, she gave Jesus the body with which he redeemed the world. Yeah. Yeah. She, that's unique cooperation, you know, in the, in mm-hmm. Christ saving work. I mean, she does more than that too, but, but that's right at the foundation of it. So even yeah. that when it's explained to our Protestants, say, well, mm-hmm. okay, you're not taking away from Jesus role as Redeemer, you're saying how Christ involves all of us in his redeeming work, especially Mary in that yeah. in that really unique way. Yeah. We're all members of the body of Christ. There's no such thing as Jesus. There's never, at this point, there's certainly no such thing as Jesus alone, but there never was before. There was always the Son in the context of the Father and the Spirit. So right. I guess the Protestant sort of sola Jesus is well meant, but a kind of a deviation in a, in a different way. Yeah, but definitely, and I, I think they miss um, in scriptures. It definitely tells us that tells us that Christ is preeminent in everything. Yeah. Literally, what it says in Colossians, right? Christ yeah. is first in everything. Of course, he is. He's the source of of all saving grace. Mm-hmm. He is the savior. Um, but he saves us through uh, the mediation of the whole body of Christ. Yeah. Um, above all, through uh, the first member, if you will. The, uh, the, uh, the most, um, the highest creature, mm-hmm. the most sanctified member of all the yeah. who married the, in the body of Christ. Um, and, and you said it very well just a moment ago, I think, Chris, and I talk about this in the very first chapter of the book, I think, mm-hmm. that um, it, it's hard to talk about Christ alone because Christ is never alone. Yeah. He always comes to us in and through and with the whole communion of saints, yeah. his whole body. Um, and that's how he gathers up. Uh, his people to himself. Uh, as if you were, uh, the church goes fishing with nets, not with rod and reel, yeah. um, and and brings us all in one body yeah. into his heart. Yeah, I would I would adjust that a bit. Say the church both fishes both with net and with rod and reel, depending upon the okay. circumstance. But yeah, yeah. So you can't hunt goldfish with a whale gun. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, he actually. Uh, yeah, and he actually works for people like us too. Yeah. Amazing as that Amazingly, is. Amazingly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Which wow, he's uh, he's really using the B or C team here, but but with with Mary, he's using the A team. Yeah, uh, and uh, that's a, a, she's Saint Ambrose once said she's not the uh, Mary is the temple of God, not the God of the temple. Yeah, uh, she's the the clearest temple of all that clearest channel through which the mm. saving grace of Christ flows. Yeah. Okay, so then that that makes sense to a certain extent, I think, of the Immaculate Conception as preparation for that. And since that is so much at the heart of the charism of the Marian Fathers and and all of the all of the institutions that you and I serve, can you go ahead and explain for our our listeners the Immaculate Conception? Yeah, we we, we talked about it earlier in terms of its its definition. So maybe we should talk about the. Uh, the justification for it okay. a little bit. Yeah. Let, let's let's direct that way because we talked about it as you know Mary being mm-hmm. graced with the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit from the first moment of her existence to prepare her for her special and unique vocation uh, in Christ. Yep. Um, but how do we know that's true in the process? Oh come on, where's that? You know, that's some medieval thing that you guys cooked up. It's not in Scripture, but there's certainly a couple Scripture passages that point strongly in that direction. Uh, the first one is that amazing word uh, that the angel Gabriel uses to Mary at the Annunciation. The Greek is ke karatomene, mm-hmm. uh, which means hail transformed by grace one. I'm translating it literally because it's the Greek verb form karitu, 
which is only used twice in the New Testament, once for Mary in that passage, mm -hmm. uh, and once for the effects of baptism in Ephesians chapter 1, 6. And we know from St. John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, because he comments on this rare word used in Ephesians 1, 6. He says, what that word karitu means is baptism completely transforms us with the grace of Christ, mm -hmm. as it were, empowers us totally with the grace of Christ. All right, well, that's this. That's the word that uh, St. Luke chooses to use to talk about, uh, to address Mary. Yeah. You're the, tr the angel says, you're the transformed by grace one. Yeah. It's a unique title in all the scripture, which means there's something unique about mm -hmm. uh, Mary, which is being uh, referred to here. Yeah. Second passage, we could say more about that passage. Let's go on to the other one quickly. The, the second one is uh, Genesis 3.15, what the church fathers called the, uh, the Proto-Evangelium, the first prophecy of the gospel uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, um, God prophesies uh, to um, Eve, mm -hmm. who sitting there, you know, a little bit, a little bit sad and stupefied after all this happened. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the serpent, mm -hmm. between your seed and his seed, right? And uh, your seed will crush the serpent's head, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the early fathers, by consensus, this is by consensus the, throughout the Christian world, without, mm -hmm. without deviation, said, that's a prophecy of the gospel, because the one who's going to crush the serpent's head yep. is Jesus, and the serpent is the devil, right? Yep. Okay, well, who's the woman here then? Uh, between between your seed, uh, put in between between you. Actually, Jesus, I misquoted it there because um, God was talking to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Well, Jesus twice in St. John's Gospel mysteriously calls Mary woman, which is mm -hmm. not the way you talk to your mother, right? Generally so not. he was Generally. referencing, yeah, right? Yeah, usually not. Uh, in fact, never in ancient Greek do we have any record of anyone but Jesus doing this. So what is he doing? He's referring to Ma uh, Mary as the woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, which in between you and the serpent. Well, neither Eve nor any of her descendants were really at enmity with the serpent because the Hebrew word enmity means radical opposition, total opposition. The same total opposition that the Messiah would have, the Savior would crush the serpent's head, the same total opposition he would have to the serpent, to the devil, so would the woman have, mm -hmm. right? Well, how could Mary, the mother of the Messiah, have that kind of total opposition to Satan if she was corrupted by original sin. Mm -hmm. She bore the corruption of original sin in her heart from the first moment of existence. So I, I'm not saying that by these passages, this New Testament passage and the Old Testament passage, we can prove the Immaculate Conception mm -hmm. by Scripture alone, but these are pretty strong pointers in that direction. But we need we need to look at the truth that God reveals through the lens, through two lenses at the same time both scripture and tradition, because it's like we're given both because it's the same reason we're given two eyes, Chris, I mm -hmm. think. You can see everything with one eye, but not very clearly. It's a little bit blurred, right? You need two eyes to see everything in focus. And uh, early tradition uh, tells us several things. There's a liturgical tradition, which from quite early on uh, talked about Mary as all holy, the all holy one, the uh, all holy and immaculate virgin. Um, they weren't defining the immaculate conception, but it's a very strange way to talk about someone who, uh, you know, bore the corruption of original sin, mm -hmm. like all the rest of us did. Um, and then John Henry, St. John Henry Newman points out, he says, 
all the saints, as we said before, all the early saints and fathers of the church talked about Mary as the new Eve. Well, that's something because Eve started her life with a gift of grace right from the beginning, right? Yep. She and Adam yep. were created in a state of grace. Are we going to imagine, says John Henry Newman, that Mary, who was called to be the mother of the new humanity in Christ, would be given a lesser gift of grace mm-hmm. for her role? in God's plan than Eve was given for her role as mother of all the living uh, from the beginning. So, so yeah, that, that's pretty hard to believe too. So if you put all these, if you will, probabilities together, mm-hmm. they all point in the same direction, that Mary was graced from the first moment of her existence. It fits with everything, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And uh, that's amongst the main reasons why the church uh, defined it as a matter of faith. Okay. Okay. Given all of that... Why do so many Why people do... think that the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Christ and not of Mary? Uh, yeah, I think there's a semantic problem, right? We got the word conception being used twice here in in, in, in fairly uh, um, difficult sounding theological terms, yeah. right? So a, a lot of people who are not, you know, really well catechized got them the two things confused. But let's uh, let's let's sort it out here. Um, there's the virginal conception of Jesus. That's one thing, right? That's the doctrine, sometimes called the doctrine of the virgin birth. Uh, that's the fact that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without human fatherhood, mm-hmm. right? So Jesus didn't have a human father. Um, Joseph wasn't his natural father, um, but he was uh, the fatherhood, as it were, happened by a miracle of the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. That's the virginal conception of Jesus. The doctor of the Immaculate Conception, on the other hand, refers to the fact that even though Mary was conceived in the in the natural way through the conjugal union of her parents, St. Anne and St. Joachim, yet she was filled with the Holy Spirit right from the start of her existence, from that moment of conception. She didn't inherit that deprivation of the Holy Spirit that all the rest of us do from Adam and Eve that leads to all sorts of disorders and corrupting effects in the human soul that inclines us to sin. Um, The rest of us enter into the world limping, if you will, spiritually limping. But Mary, precisely because she was given an extraordinary responsibility, the most extraordinary responsibility, to receive the Christ child into the world on behalf of the whole world and to nurture and raise him, prepare him for his ministry in his time of weakness. Uh, she received that unique and special gift of grace right from her conception onward. Mm-hmm. That's the immaculate conception yeah. of Mary in the womb of her parents. Yeah. So I, I think the whole the whole problem was really, gosh, there's they all both sound like conceptions, so maybe yeah. they're kind of the same thing. No, they're two very different mysteries. So it's a perfectly understandable misconception. Uh, yeah, there we go. Thank you. Yes, thank you for that pun, Chris. Very good. <laughs> of course. What would this show be without puns, honestly? Very good. Yeah. So moving a little away from kind of the more academic side of things, what's your favorite Marian apparition? Oh, my favorite Marian apparition, I think, is Our Lady Guadalupe, the apparition of Our Lady to St. Juan Diego, mm-hmm. way back in the 16th century. Um, and I, I think that's my favorite for... Uh, for several reasons. The first of, you've got um, little Juan Diego, mm-hmm. who who kind of tries to get out of it, as the story goes, right? He, yep. Mary appears to him and says, you know, you come to me uh, 
uh, on a certain day, and I'm going to give you proof for the bishop, uh, your local bishop, that I've been appearing to you here and asking for uh, a chapel to be built in my honor. The bishop doesn't believe it. He says, well, you got to bring me some proof. And Juan Diego has other things going in life, his uncle of sex. So he, so he takes a detour. He tries to kind of weasel out of it and doesn't want to meet Mary in the place where Mary had set out. So in that way, he's kind of uh, he's kind of like the, well, uh, the rest of us. You know, we, we're kind of, you know, drawn near to Our Lady, but we kind of sometimes kind of want to weasel out of the uh, some of the tougher stuff that uh, some of the more heroic stuff she might call us to do from the heart of her son. Uh, but anyway, she loves him anyway and meets him in the on the alternate route that he had that he had traveled, right? Yeah. Um, and ultimately, of course, uh, she uh, miraculously imprints on his telma, mm -hmm. uh, his vegetable fiber cloak, yeah. uh, this image of herself, which Juan Diego he he was just gathering up roses in his telma. He didn't even know that she'd done this. Mm -hmm. But when she when he goes to the bishop and brings these roses which had been blooming in winter that was that's what he thought the confirming miracle was that mary was appearing to him it turns out that stunned everybody was not so much the roses but this incredible image on his tilma which anyone can go see now in guadalupe it's still there normally vegetable fiber tilmas um, decay and corrupt after about 20 25 years this one's been going for 500 years almost uh, and it's still as fresh and as beautiful as the day Mary imprinted her image on it. And it still defies the explanation of scientists. In my book, I put a quote from one of the scientists who did an investigation in this, on this and found all sorts of amazing things. For example, there's if this is a painting, how it could how could it be anything else in those days? Yeah. Uh, it, it has no it has no underdrawing that a painter would have. Mm -hmm. It has no brush strokes on it. It has some of the pigments in it are unknown to people in that day and age yeah. right so um it has no cracking of the paint after all these years mm -hmm. how could that possibly be a, a, a painting that's exposed to the yeah. uh torrid mexican summers and to candle smoke mm -hmm. from the altar it even had a bomb go off in front of it yeah. in front of the altar uh in the 1920s when the freemasons and in, in mexico were, were trying to tear down the catholic church a bomb went off from a terrorist mm -hmm. in right in front of the altar that was so strong it bent the iron cross on the altar, mm -hmm. but did no damage to the uh, to the to the miraculous image on the tilma that was mm -hmm. right behind the cross, right above it. Yeah. So it's it's an incredible confirming confirming miracle, and of course mm -hmm. a very moving image. But um, the image has two other things which I think are so important, Chris. And this may be known to a lot of your listeners, but I think it mustn't mustn't be forgotten. Um, its effects, first of all, once that image was given. Uh, to the church in Mexico, it within five years resulted in the in the conversion to the Catholic faith of eight million Aztecs and other local natives mm -hmm. to the faith. But it it had a so it, it it's a great sign of life, right? Of the 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 culture of life versus the culture of death, because it put a stop once and for all to the the terrible practice of human sacrifice to the mm -hmm. pagan gods that was still going on. The Mexican, uh, sorry, the Spanish. Invaders had kind of put a stop to it, but it's still going on out of the yeah. hinterlands there. But it, that put a stop to it once mm -hmm. and for all. Uh, but another amazing thing, last thing I'll say on this, is that Mary appears in that image as a mestiza, which is as a person of both Spanish, of combined Spanish and Indian blood. Mm -hmm. There's an important message there. Mary is calling for the reconciliation uh, through her. Mm -hmm. uh, 
of the Spanish uh, um, conquerors the, who had come and conquered and exploited the local Indians, mm -hmm. uh, calling them to greater social justice, if you will, to be reconciled to the uh, local populations, and also calling the local uh, natives to the conversion to the Catholic faith, conversion to her son, whom she appears as a woman with child, mm -hmm. right, as a, as a pregnant mestiza. So there's this image uh, of racial reconciliation uh, and reconciliation, reconciliation in the fullest sense in Christ uh, and in greater justice too for um, the people that were were there that the, the Spanish had come upon there and that had uh, exploited and abused. Uh, and I think all that's a great message for us today, the yeah. importance of racial reconciliation, the importance of social justice, and the importance of conversion. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is what that Catholic Church is calling for uh, yeah. today, not just one or the one aspect or, or the other of that. Yeah. And so it, in all of that, she is the star of the new evangelization with the, the different patronages that she's got, patroness of the inborn, um, mm -hmm. I think some some title from what, Pius Twelfth, I think, Empress or Queen of the Americas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of bringing all of that together. I like that one too, a great deal. What's your favorite Marian devotion? Oh, but my favorite Marian devotion is one that maybe not many of your listeners know, and it's something very small and very, very short. So I'll, I'll just fish it out of my book for you here and, mm -hmm. and read it. It's, um, it's the litany of the litany to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, short litany written by St. John Henry Newman. Mm -hmm. And it's not surprising that Newman would be uh, someone uh, important in my life. I was an Anglican convert to Roman yep. Catholicism. And St. John Henry Newman, uh, here I'm talking about not John Newman, the American mm -hmm. saint who's a bishop in, in Pennsylvania long ago, but yeah. but I'm talking about St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, the, the, um, the Anglican convert in England from the yep. 19th century. Uh, he wrote this litany, which is is very short, and and it's something I, I pray every day. But maybe it's it's unknown to a lot of your listeners. So by your leave, I'll just yeah. I'll just read it quickly. It's not mm -hmm. a, it's not long if we've got enough time. Yeah. It, it goes like this: Immaculate Heart of Mary, gentle and humble of heart, make our hearts like the heart of Jesus. Heart of Mary, pray for us. Heart of Mary, united with the heart of Jesus, pray for us. Heart of Mary, temple of the Trinity, pray for us. Heart of Mary, home of the incarnate word, pray for us. Heart of Mary, overflowing with grace, pray for us. Heart of Mary, blessed among all hearts, pray for us. Heart of Mary, abyss of humility, pray for us. Heart of Mary, sacrifice of love, pray for us. Heart of Mary, crucified, pray for us. Heart of Mary, consolation of the afflicted, pray for us. Heart of Mary, refuge of sinners, pray for us. Heart of Mary, hope of the dying, pray for us. Heart of Mary, seat of mercy, pray for us. Heart of Mary, pray for us. Immaculate Mary, gentle and humble of heart, make our hearts like the heart of Jesus. I, I like that one so much, um, just because for me, it, so much of uh, the mystery of Mary and the, and the great thing that our Lord did in Mary and through Mary is summed up in devotion to her Immaculate Heart. And here's uh, St. John Henry Newman kind of sums up all sorts yeah. of different aspects of what we find in the heart of Mary. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, for me, that's a great kind of summary uh, 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 summary thing. And, and uh, I just found myself praying that uh, every day as part of 
mm-hmm. part of my prayer. So we, we the, the church is a rich treasury of Marian devotion, right? You've got uh, you've got the Rosary, you've got the Litany of Our Lady of Loretto, you've got so many things, ways we can be uh, drawn near to Our Lady and through her, through the heart of Mary to the heart of her Son. This is just one way yeah. uh, that I found really helpful. How have you encountered the power of Mary's intercession in your own life? You know, that's a that's a kind of difficult question because there, in my life, um, in in um, the life of my family too, and my my wife, mm-hmm. uh, my wife Catherine, my wife Catherine is Polish, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm talking to you from Warsaw. I'm with her in in, uh, in Poland right now. She's having some medical tests done. So mm-hmm. ask your listeners to pray for her. her name is Catherine or Kasia, uh, for short, in the intimate short form in Poland. Mm-hmm. Catherine. Um, but uh, I don't think there's any one, I don't have a story of any one incident or event or even Marian miracle. We've got a couple of great Faustina miracles in our life, which is one day I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about, but mm-hmm. uh, it, not anything uh, specific. I would you know, put my finger on and said that was a, you know, a kind of Mary miracle, but, it, but in a sense, she's the background of everything good that's happened in our lives together. There's, it seems like there's no aspect in our life that uh, we haven't just through daily prayer, just through, you know, daily drawing near to her and through here to Christ in prayer that we've been delivered from so many trials and tribulations. Uh, we've been given so many blessings and consolations on our journey, none of which we've deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, gifts of grace, I'd say we, in a certain sense, we've never not experienced the power of her mother living up, even when we didn't feel it, but she's kept us afloat, mm-hmm. kept us going. We're pretty high maintenance people in that respect. She's got her work cut out for us. But I guess what I'm trying to say, Chris, is that, uh, again, we it's not that there was a particular event, you mm-hmm. know, a dramatic miracle or something through Mar- that I can trace, you know, kind of yeah. directly through Mary's prayers that, or through a visit to uh, Marian shrines. My wife and I, she's polar, so mm-hmm. we often go to the shrine of Our Lady of Czestochowa, which is a great spot, mm-hmm. great Marian shrine. Um, but there's nothing in particular, but just the fact that she's been the background of everything good that's happened in our lives. Uh, through Just through our daily prayers, we've gone through so many trials and tribulations with mm-hmm. her, you know, no doubt praying for us each day as we turn to her in prayer to keep us with her son. Receive so many blessings and consolations uh, that we didn't deserve and just came to us by sheer grace. Uh, made it through so much. Yeah. Kept, we, she kept us afloat. Uh, we're pretty high maintenance uh, crew, uh, but she kept us, you know, from straying from the heart. And I, I, I hope kept us growing too. I, yeah. uh, but at the very least kept us afloat and kept us uh, uh, in the boat, if you will, with her son, that uh, she's always been there for us, just like, uh, you know, a, a mother, you, she's always there for you. You mm-hmm. know, you're not only your human mother, if it's a loving mother, but your yeah. spiritual mother as well. A spiritual food passer, you might say. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been great to have you with us. Robert is the author of Mary, Who She Is and Why She Matters. And and I would recommend anyone with any questions about the Blessed Virgin Mary to pick that up. Uh, even if Robert doesn't answer it in the book, he points you in the direction of where you can find the answers. Thanks again so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to talk with you, even from uh, about 8,000 miles away. The Miracles of Technology. There you go. All right. Thanks, Chris. 
To order Mary, Who She Is and Why She Matters, please visit shopmercy.org. This has been Sparks of Mercy. Thanks for listening. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. Jesus, I trust in you. I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Thank you.